Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word In this episode, we will be celebrating the communion, otherwise known as the table of the Lord, or even sometimes the Eucharist. But before we get started, let me say a few things. In this ministry, we do things a bit differently than you may be used to. In most Christian churches around the world, there's a lot of tradition that goes along with this celebration. And let me say, by the way, that includes those independent evangelical churches who like to proudly claim to be tradition-free. We, in this ministry, like to keep it simple. We follow our Lord's instructions, and we handle ourselves in a scriptural manner while we celebrate. Now, let me explain, and this is all you'll need to know to celebrate with us. Let me begin with some scripture, always my favorite place to start. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here in Matthew 26, we find the authorization, if you will, for the bread and the cup, collectively known as the elements. So when you celebrate the communion, you are to have a set of the elements for everyone participating with you. That is, you'll have some bread, and a cup with something to drink. Those are the elements. Now, although we are not going to get too hung up on the details of the elements, here are some guidelines. First, the bread. Now, forget tradition. I know some of you are used to the little round wafers that are given out in some churches. Now, I'm not a big fan of that, but I don't want to get into why I'm not a big fan of that, into what I'm calling this mini lesson. Plain old bread is fine. That's what scriptures say Jesus used, so there's no reason to be too elaborate. However, having said that, let me say that when we in this ministry partake, we use unleavened bread. You maybe know unleavened bread as matzah or matzo or matzo crackers. The reason why we use matzo crackers or unleavened bread is because we can be certain that's what Jesus ate that night. The story of what we today call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper 
took place during the celebration of Passover and all devout Jews, and trust me, there was no Jew more devout than Jesus. All devout Jews ate only unleavened bread during the celebration of Passover. Jesus and his disciples, you can be sure, only had unleavened bread on their table that night. So we use unleavened bread when we partake in the communion. Now you may ask, is it a sin to eat leavened bread during the communion? Bread that has yeast in it. Is that a sin while celebrating the communion? Well, in my opinion, no. And the, the, the devil and the church, they want us to worry about that. They want us to overly worry about that, but let's not. Remember, the whole point of the communion is to remember him, not just some silly list of ingredients. Let's just make a decision on the type of bread and then go with it because it's just bread. Again, tradition may want to tell you something different, but it is just bread. The important part in all of this is what the bread represents. And Jesus told us what that is. Quote, I'm reading from scripture again. Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So that's the bread. It's a symbol of his body, the body he gave up for us. So what's next? Matthew 26, 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here is where there's been a sustained battle for centuries. Again, our aim in this lesson is not to argue, fuss, and fight. So, let's just keep this simple by again telling you what we believe and the manner in which we partake. First of all, at our communion celebrations, there are two elements. Now, some church tradition doesn't stress the two-element thing. Some church tradition says that all you need is the bread, but that's not what Jesus said. And so, we have both elements, the bread, which we've already discussed, and the cup. Now, what about the cup? What should be in it? Well, as we just said, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his friends when all of this took place. So we can be relatively certain that the cup he chose to share was one of the ritual cups of the Seder, which is the traditional, highly ritualized Passover meal. We've covered the Seder in previous lessons. And if you remember that lesson, you'll know that there are ceremonial cups of wine. So most likely there was a cup of wine, and I use that term loosely, there was a cup of wine at the table, and that was the cup that Jesus used. That's why most of the time when you do receive the cup at communion, there's wine in it. However, it's 
not unusual to be in a church that simply uses grape juice and even sometimes water. Now, let me state my position on this. It's exactly how I feel about the bread. I don't believe it matters what's in the cup, so don't let the contents of the cup distract you. You are celebrating a memorial with symbols. That's what the elements are. They're symbols. Now, down through the centuries, again, I will say this has been hotly debated, and we're not going to reopen that debate here. In this ministry, we use, listen to me, plain old fruit juice, either grape or cherry. Now, don't let that fact cause you to judge my stance on the use of alcohol. My feelings about alcohol have nothing to do with our choice of this communion element. This is why we use non-alcoholic fruit juice. This is listen to this. In order to produce alcohol, some of you know you will most likely use a type of yeast. Now, this is, of course, an oversimplification. Please don't email me and write me letters trying to straighten me out about the fermenting process. Most commonly, fermentation of alcoholic beverages involves the introduction of yeast. Now, yeast is leaven, and since there is to be no leaven whatsoever in the homes of devout Jews during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by the way, which follows the Feast of Passover, because there was no leaven in the homes at that time, during that celebration, we believe that Jesus probably didn't hand out alcoholic wine. Alcoholic wine is technically leavened grape juice. Now, can I state that categorically? Can I categorically say that Jesus did not hand out wine? No, it doesn't say. And what do I say every time the Bible doesn't say something about something? It's not important. But I will say, as I did before, I don't think you're sinning if you do things differently or think things differently than we do when it comes to the contents of the elements. Once again, I say you decide what you use and then put, listen to me, put the whole matter out of your mind. Which leads us to the last very important issue we'll discuss with regard to the communion. This time, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself. The King James says, let a man examine himself. This is the revised version. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eateth and drinketh, eateth and drinketh judgment unto himself, if he discern not the body. Now for many centuries, there has been fear 
around this table, and that eventually fear gave way to apathy. First, we feared the table of the Lord. Then we didn't care. That's where we are now, where people don't care. And neither of those two states is acceptable. Let's cover the fear. Now, to be honest, I get it. I understand the element of fear. The above passage that I just read is rather ominous. It speaks of being guilty of something. It speaks of judgment. There are, these are things that you and I and every clear-thinking Christian shrinks from. We don't want to be guilty. We don't want judgment. We want to do things right. And then throw in the very next verse, For this cause many among you are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep, meaning die. Throw that verse in, and then you have a full-scale panic every time the pastor says, Time for communion. No! Do we really think that's what Jesus intended when he left this for us, for us to be fearful when we come to the table? Now, we can, and we have spent entire lessons on this, but let me set your mind somewhat at ease. Paul is saying that if we drink, eat and drink unworthily, now that word is an adverb, unworthily, that's why I keep saying it like that, unworthily is an adverb. Adverbs describe actions, not actors. This is not unworthy, this is unworthily. Adverbs describe an action. Paul says, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, then you're risking those things that he mentioned. The judgment. Being guilty. If you partake in an unworthy manner. Now, I don't want to go into too much depth here about what those things are that he says you're risking, because the point of this lesson is to go over how to make Jesus happy when you celebrate the communion. In this lesson, we're not focusing on anything other than what God expects out of us. Because frankly, if we do what he asks, well, then it won't matter what happens to us when we do otherwise, right? God says to eat and drink in a worthy manner, so let's just do that. Well... What does that mean? Fortunately, Paul tells us, and he tells us in plain, easy language. Paul says that the unworthy manner is eating and drinking, not discerning the Lord's body. The unworthy manner is when you don't discern the Lord's body. A worthy manner, therefore, is discerning the Lord's body, right? Does that make sense? Now, you, maybe you're saying, well, what does discern mean? What does that mean? Well, let's look at Webster's. Now, this is important. This is important to get to the basics, not only to avoid those negative ramifications of not eating and drinking worthily, but also because this sweet little celebration was given to us by someone we love, right? He told us to do this, and we love him. If you're 
dear granny asked you to take your shoes off in the house, you'd do it because you're because she's your sweet granny and you love her and you want to please her. You don't ignore granny, at least I hope you don't. You don't sit there and, well, should I take my shoes off or shouldn't I? I mean, how important is this? Is granny going to smack me in the back of the head? Is that really what you think about? Granny asked me. I love her. I'll do what she says. Why would this be any different? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You're going to find out in a moment that remembrance and discerning are the same thing. Now, according to Webster, to discern means to come to know or recognize mentally. It's that simple. That's the definition of the English word discern. It also sounds, well, pretty close to the word remembrance, don't you think? Real quick, Webster says, remembrance means the state of bearing in mind. Same thing as recognizing something mentally. They mean the same thing. Jesus wants you to remember him, to discern him, discern what he did for you when you go to the table. Now, one more time, forget for a moment what happens to you if you don't and just concentrate on how this is simply a request from someone we love. Jesus wants you to remember him. Listen, if we concentrated more on this, whatever this is as a relationship, this church thing, this Christianity, if we concentrated more on this being a relationship between two people, a lot of the silliness goes away. We cloud it with tradition. We, we make it foggy with all the silly things that we do and think and say. It's a relationship. You can get to the true meaning and intention of things if you just realize this is a relationship. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, I love you. That's what I'm going to do. Yes, there are things that can happen to me if I don't do that. Forget about that. Jesus said to do it. I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to remember him. He wants us to think about him. Now, whenever I take communion in a church, which is not very often, church is not a good place to concentrate on the things of God. And I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's true. Church is not a good place to go if you want to concentrate on the things of God. Now, most churches, there are some churches, sure. Most churches, no. Tell me, honestly, does it look like anyone is concentrating on Jesus at communion in church? Again, maybe some, but not very often, unfortunately. And that's partly why we celebrate communion with you through this ministry, either over the radio or through our web stream or now through these podcasts. We want you to have some control over your discerning environment. So when you partake, and the lesson again, I want to tell you, the lesson that follows this little intro, yeah, some, some little intro, the lesson that follows this intro 
is one in which we go to the table of the Lord. And I'm suggesting to you that if you want to partake, once we get to the communion in this lesson, I'm going to tell you it's not, it doesn't happen right away. It happens sometime during the lesson. This was previously recorded a couple of years ago. Sometime in that lesson, we go to the table of the Lord. And if you want to partake then I suggest that you find somewhere quiet and without distraction so that you can commit your full attention to discerning and remembering. So let's wrap this up. It's already gone far longer than I had intended it to do. The lesson that follows contains a communion celebration, and if you want to join us, and you don't have to. You can just listen to the lesson. You can listen to the communion and how we do things. You do not have to partake if you listen. Just listen. But if you do decide to partake, here are some things to keep in mind. Number one, this is a wrap-up. This is a summary. Number one, have a set of the elements, that's the bread and the wine, for each person who will be participating with you. The bread will symbolize the body, and the cup will symbolize the blood. You, and what's in the cup? It can be wine, it can be juice or water. The one that will be in front of me will have juice. Number two, make sure you are in a place where you do not have any distractions, at least for the few minutes that we will be sharing together at the table of the Lord. Turn off your phone, put the little ones to bed, put the dogs upstairs, draw the curtains if you have to, just find a quiet, peaceful place so you can remember him. You got all that? The table of the Lord is one of the most lovely experiences we can have as members of his church. We will be getting into a communion message in just a few moments. The table of the Lord is a lovely celebration. If we do it right, without fear and without distraction, it can be something you look forward to time and again. Just make sure you show Jesus the respect he deserves and partake of the communion as he commanded, as he said, do this in remembrance of me. You know, there are few things in Christianity that are as important as this table. Now you may say, well, isn't our salvation the most important matter? in Christianity? Well, my answer to that is a qualified yes. It's true that your salvation is important, but it's important, in my opinion, for a reason you may not have considered. The unfortunate truth of modern Christianity is that it's focused on the believer. The word Christianity has lost its meaning. The so-called Christian religion is becoming less and less so. You see, you would think that something called Christianity would be centered on Christ. But it isn't. It should, but it isn't. And really, the blame for that aberration 
belongs squarely on the shoulders of the leaders of the church, the everyday pastors, ministers, priests, bishops, archbishops, presidents of the denomination, whatever title they want to use. They're to blame for the loss of Christ in Christianity. You see, the church is more concerned about you. They're focused on making you happy. The church is busy elevating you, glorifying you. And do you know why? Because that's what you want. Because if you're happy, then you'll come back. And chances are, if you come back often, you won't let that collection plate go by without at least throwing in a few scraps now and then. And it's those scraps that keep the doors open. John, you are really an SOB when it comes to the church. Maybe. But let me ask you, do you think I'm wrong? Now, of course, it's not a discussion for today, but I have one more point to make on the topic. Do not blindly trust any man-made institution. Religion is a man-made institution, in case you didn't already know that. Historically, the man-made church, not the one that Jesus built, the man-made church has only thought of itself all the while making you feel like you're special. It's satanic, and it's going to cost you. So back to today's topic. I was making a statement about what's important in Christianity. Some may argue that our salvation is of utmost importance, and I agree with that, but the importance that I place on salvation is not because I got saved, but because Christ saved me. He is why salvation is important. It's what he did that makes salvation of the utmost importance. I'm really just a small part of that. Now, I know that he thought of me while dying on that cross, and that was no minor matter to him at that time. But in the grand scheme of things, my inclusion in all of this is currently unimportant. Same thing goes for you. The importance of salvation, and frankly, everything else in Scripture is because it is of and through Him. Salvation is not important because I got saved. It's important because He saved me. Now you say, well, sounds like you're splitting hairs. Listen, a miss is a miss, whether you miss it by a millimeter or a mile. Arguably, one of the most important 
contributions to the greatness of this country was the invention of the steam engine. At one time, this country was crisscrossed with railways that brought progress to a a backward, isolated, wilderness-covered continent. Now, I suppose you could debate whether this helped mankind or not, but harnessing the power of steam transformed not only this country, but the entire Western world. Well, without boiling water, you don't have enough power to move your machine. Water boils at 212 degrees. At 211, it's just hot water with no value to the progress of that machine. One little old degree. What may seem a minor difference can have a profound effect. Yes, I will agree that salvation is of utmost importance, but salvation's value is in the Savior and not the saved. The very same thing should be said about the table of the Lord, and that's why we treat it with such high regard around here. Partaking in communion is a blessed thing because he's in it. Listen, there are a lot of folks that get really bound up in the details of this celebration and have since it was instituted. Some say you can only partake in a church. Some say a priest or a minister or a pastor must be present. Some may say you have to bless the elements. Some say you have to have incense. Some say you have to examine your own worthiness before you can partake. Some say you can only have wine. Some say you can't have wine. And let me say, all of these parameters will be presented with very convincing theological arguments. But in the end, all of these petty disagreements have the effect of removing Christ from the celebration. And the funny thing is, that's the only requirement Jesus put on it. The only thing Jesus said about this was that we were to do it in remembrance of him. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. The Bible is full of so many profound subtleties. And of course, this is by design. 
God wants you to treat his word as hidden treasure. You see there that Paul mentions the night Jesus was betrayed as being the night of this celebration that we are repeating this morning. Well, in Matthew's account, we're told that the night he was betrayed, the night of this celebration, was the first day of unleavened bread. Well, actually, the King James of version of Matthew's gospel says it was the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. That is not an accurate statement. How dare you? If you have your King James open, and if you don't, I'll give you the reference in a moment, and I want you to look this up. But if you have your King James open, you will notice that the word feast is in italics. Now, you remember what the significance of italics in the King James is, don't you? Whenever you see a word in italics in the King James, it means that word was added by the translators. It wasn't in the original. Well, these words that are in italics were put in italics because they were added by the translators. The King James translators were honest enough to let you know when they added a word. And they, the way you knew that was that word was in italics. And they did that, presumably, because one of the mandates when they put the King James Bible together was to make it useful to the people in church. They wanted a Bible that was useful in helping people understand God. That was their mandate from King James. And one of the ways they felt they could do that was to better explain what was a relatively difficult document. One of the ways they did that was to put words in to help you understand. Most of the time, that goal was achieved. Most of the time, it does enhance our understanding. But then there are other times, like this time. This night, the night of this celebration, was not the first night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was the first night of Unleavened Bread. This was the first of eight total nights spanning two feasts where unleavened bread was eaten in the place of leavened bread. This night was the night of the Passover. And the feast of unleavened bread would happen on the next day. Unleavened bread was eaten on Passover and unleavened bread was eaten during the feast of unleavened bread. And those two feasts ran consecutively. So Passover happened, and then immediately the Feast of Unleavened Bread happened, and both feasts was unleavened bread only. So it was the first night of unleavened bread, not the first night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why do you go through this, John? Because God's Word is important. Because, rest assured, someone is going to tell you, aha, the Bible is a liar. Because Jesus didn't take communion on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
You can say, hang on, that's not what the Bible said. Now you can say, that's what the King James said. That's what human beings said. Not so. It was the first of unleavened bread, not the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. Hopefully that's clear. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up this unleavened bread issue is not to tell you about the feast days and not to tell you about how the King James is structured, nor to get overly technical. I brought this up so we can talk about what unleavened bread actually is. Unleavened bread is one of those lovely little hidden treasures in Scripture. The bread that Jesus took, gave thanks, broke, and handed to his friends was unleavened bread. And it's simply marvelous that it was. Unleavened bread is bread without leaven. And yes, I know you figured that out. But do you know what leaven is? Leaven is whatever you add to bread to make it rise. Yeast is the most common form of leaven. Unleavened bread, bread without yeast, is very important to the Jewish people, even to this very day. In fact, in my opinion, the only reason why unleavened bread still exists is because of the Jewish people. You see, unleavened bread is a reminder of the redemption of the Israelites from the land of Egypt, arguably the most important event in Jewish history. Now, the amazing thing why I love God so much, one of the reasons why I love God so much, is that not only is He miraculous, but He's so practical. You see, God knew that once the Jews escaped their Egyptian slave masters, they were going to be pursued. The Jewish people, God knew, were in store for an extended period of time on the run through the wilderness. Now, you know this, of course. Well, the most important thing for a group of pursued escapees is to travel lightly. Frankly, anyone that needs to move quickly and easily through the wilderness needs to travel lightly. When I was in the U.S. military, we would on occasion hold field training exercises. Field training exercises, in part, were designed to teach and improve the ability of military units to travel quickly from one battle to another. Well, in preparation for the conditions that we were to encounter, we were given lightweight equipment and supplies. Well, the most important of those supplies, to me at least, was the food. We were given these little meal packets 
that were designed to require very little or no cooking. You see, when you're on the move, when you're moving swiftly from one place to another, there's no way to haul around a bunch of stoves and ovens. So instead, food that can be easily and quickly prepared was issued. Well, believe it or not, I think the U.S. military learned that little trick from God. Bread has always been a vital foodstuff for people all over the world, no less true for the Israelites on the run. But the problem with typical bread is that is it is, as we've said, made with yeast. Yeast makes the bread soft and yummy and, frankly, easy to digest. Yeasty bread goes with lots of other dishes, and it's part of a lovely meal. But yeasty bread is neither quick nor easy to make. The production of yeasty bread requires an oven. You can't carry an oven with you when you're being pursued by an Egyptian army. So God told the Israelites to use unleavened bread. But is that really all there is to it? Or is there something more? Nope, that's all there is. Let's keep moving. Just kidding. Of course, there's more to it than just a convenient bread recipe. Here's a fact you can live by. Everything that God recorded in his book has something to do with his son. I'll say it again. Everything that God recorded in his book has something to do with his son, Old Testament, New Testament included. Now, of course, I will admit, as I have in the past, that not everything is immediately obvious. But let's see what you think about this particular subject. But before we go on, why do you suppose God is always talking about His Son? Why is there always some way to explain Jesus and everything that's written in Scripture? I'll answer the question for you. God wove some sort of reference to Jesus in everything that's in the Bible so that when you discover him, and you will, with the help of the Holy Spirit and good old hard work, when you discover him in each of those pieces of Scripture, you're going to know that God has been planning your salvation through Jesus the entire time. And that will have the effect of increasing your faith. Now, I'm sure you're already thinking, well, how can a weird piece of bread refer to Jesus? Now, of course, I could obscurely point you to the fact that Jesus once referred to himself as, for instance, the bread of life or the bread that came down from heaven. But 
those references don't necessarily link him to unleavened bread. Now remember, it was unleavened bread that Jesus said was his body at the so-called Last Supper. It was unleavened bread that he picked up and broke and handed to his disciples. That was unleavened bread. And that's why we're going into this depth with this on this communion. Have you ever seen unleavened bread? Now, it may surprise you to hear me say that. I'm almost certain you have. Unleavened bread, though an actual biblical thing, is also quite common today. And I'll repeat what I said. It's common today because of the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, the two-word English phrase unleavened bread is a translation of the Hebrew word matzah. Matzah. I'm pretty sure you've heard that before. Matzo or matzah. One of Sammy's favorite sicky time meals is a matzah ball soup. And like it sounds, there's just a big ball of matzah dough right in the middle of a bowl of broth, and it is 100% comfort food. Matzo or matzah bread is very common, especially around Passover, either before or during. You'll see matzah bread stacked up on grocery store shelves if you don't already shop for them. I'm sure you've seen them. The most common brand seems to be Manischewitz, but then there's Yehuda and Straits. I think Straight is actually made in New York. Now, if you've never seen unleavened bread, it looks very much like a saltine cracker, only without the salt. Matzah bread today, by the way, is exactly the same thing as it was when the Jews were wandering in the desert. Now again, I know you're thinking, well, what does this have to do with the table of the Lord? As I said, while they were moving through the desert, even after speed was no longer necessary following the destruction of the Egyptian army, the 12 tribes, probably two to five million strong, they continued to travel lightly for the entire 40 years. All they had as they moved around were their tents and only, only the essentials. They were always on the move. They certainly didn't have fully stocked kitchens out there in the backside of the desert. To prepare their meals, all they had were a, a few bowls, maybe some jars, Cups, small plates, perhaps some very crude cutlery. So because of that, food had to be prepared in the simplest of ways. Bread being no exception. As we said, no bread ovens. Everything had to be cooked if it was going to be cooked over an open flame. And that's the only way to eat bread is to cook it. Now, if you've ever eaten anything outdoors over an open flame, 
you know you have to remember a few things. First of all, open flames tend to cook on one side only unless you rig something up. For instance, nobody wants a hunk of meat that's burned on the bottom and raw on the top. You have to figure out how to cook both sides evenly. That's the advantage of an oven is that sort of it gets hot inside and cooks both sides of whatever it is you're trying to cook. Well, you can't do that in the open air. The heat escapes up into the atmosphere. So you have to figure something out. Well, long ago, the barbecue spit was invented. You kind of run a pole or a stick of some sort through your meat, lay that stick or pole across two upright or uprights, positioned in such a way that the meat is suspended over the flame, and then you just start turning the pole or stick slowly, and thereby evenly exposing the flame to all the sides of the meat. Before long, you have a lovely piece of mutton when the meat is nice and lean. It really works. It's a brilliant invention for meat. Not so much for bread. Even if you could get the dough, leavened or not, to stay on the stick, once you made one rotation, the whole thing starts to sag down into the fire. Dinner ruined. Well, how do you accomplish even heating for your unleavened bread? Nobody wants bread that's hard on the bottom and kind of mushy on top. How do you evenly heat bread? Well, one way is to pierce the dough. You pierce it through. You see, the piercing allows the heat to rise to the top, rise through the bottom and to the top. So that's how they cooked unleavened bread. And to this day, matzah bread has holes all through it from piercing. That's the first physically identifiable trait of matzah bread. It is pierced. Now next, because unleavened bread won't stay on a roasting pit for long, it has to be placed, piercing and all, on a grill. You all know what grills are? Well, if you've ever used a grill yourself, you'll notice that before long, there appears a pattern on whatever you're cooking. And the pattern resembles stripes. When you cook something on a grill, it becomes striped. Same thing with matzo bread. To this day, if you pick up a piece of matzo bread, you'll notice that it's pierced and it's striped. Pierced and striped. That's how you know it's an authentic piece of matzah. It has piercings and stripes. Now, one of the advantages of using a gas grill for your outdoor cooking 
is that the flame is controlled by a device called a burner. So a gas grill in that way is very similar to an indoor stove because the heat is applied uniformly. Well, trust me, there were no gas grills in the backside of the desert. They had to use regular open flame. And open flames don't cook evenly because the flames are not even. They're prone to flare-ups. You know what I mean, right? A flare-up is when the flame here and there sort of leaps up. High flame here, low flame there. And it's all higgledy-piggledy, which is really fun to say. Higgledy-piggledy. It means in a completely non-specific random pattern. Well, the effect of these flare-ups on the unleavened dough are little scorch marks where the flame licked up. So here and there, where the flame sort of singed the dough, there'll be little marks. And when you look closely at those marks on the finished unleavened bread, you'd swear that they look like bruises. Little dark spots that resemble bruises. Matzah bread is pierced, bruised, and striped. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Let me tell you that that is not a correct translation. This is the correct translation. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes. We are healed. Pierced bruised, striped. The bread that Jesus used in that upper room was unleavened bread. It looked exactly the same way that unleavened bread looked way back in Egypt, and it looks just like the piece of unleavened bread I have in my hand. Now remember, I'm just, I'm just using his words. Let's read out of Matthew this time. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Now remember, this is Passover. The only bread allowed on Passover is unleavened bread. Jesus took bread. And as he picked it up, with its obvious physical characteristic, how it must have made him feel. Fear, sadness, joy maybe. After all, he was about to fulfill his purpose. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. This was a moment that had been waiting 
for 1,200 years. Ever since those Israelites first prepared that very characteristic-looking different bread out there in the wilderness. Now, don't you think they must have thought, why is this bread so important? Why does God want us to make bread this way? They must have known there was more to it than just the practical application as we've already described, don't you think? These were not ignorant people. They may not have been worshiping this God for very long. They didn't have much chance to do that for the previous 400 years while they were captive to the pagan worshiping Egyptians, but I'm certain they still knew all the stories. They must have told and retold the old tales of their fathers. They knew about this God. They heard how this God gave Abraham a miracle baby. They knew about that. They knew that that miracle baby eventually led to the establishment of them themselves. Certainly they knew about Jacob. His name was Israel. They were the tribes of Israel. They were the tribes of Jacob. They knew that. Generation after generation, they told the story about this fantastic God. They must have known how they ended up in Egypt in the first place. They knew it wasn't slavery the whole time. I know the Egyptian captors knew about their mighty ancestor Joseph and his miraculous deeds in their land. The Egyptians knew about that. The Israelites must have known God was at work doing something. This unleavened bread must mean something. God is being way too specific. Well, the answer had to wait more than a thousand years. But here he was with that ancient symbol of himself right there in his hand. Can you imagine? I mean, he had celebrated the same celebration of Passover in every one of his 33 years. So we knew all about the presence of matzo at the Seder. But now the whole thing is well, it's about to come full circle. He saw the stripes. He saw the bruises. He saw the pierces. And he knew those spoke of him. And so what does he do? He breaks it. And says, this is my body the culmination of history was literally and figuratively in his hands. And he breaks it. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I believe he broke that bread with only one thought in mind. It was actually something he had said not too long before. John 10, 17. 
Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. He broke that bread. The symbol of himself. It didn't come to him broken. When it was given to him, it wasn't broken. He broke it. Do you understand? No man was going to take his life from him. He wasn't a martyr. Martyrs' lives are taken. He broke that symbol of himself. He saw the bruises. He saw the stripes. He saw the piercings, and he knew it was him. That's what he meant. This is my body. It's kind of amazing, don't you think? Poetic, poignant, beautiful. And after that, he said, do this in memory of me. In exchange for eternity, all he asked at that moment anyhow, at this table anyhow, all he asks you, all he asks me, is to remember him. I say this all the time when we do this. This is just one of the most moving, heart-wrenching things I've ever heard. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember what I've done. Don't forget me. I mean, it's excellent advice, of course. But it's also something that benefits us. Remembering him is another way of saying live by faith. But I don't think that's what he was thinking at that moment. I think he saw the pierces and the bruises and the stripes, and he must have thought, I hope they make all this worth it. I hope they don't make this a waste of time. Listen, am I being a little overdramatic? Maybe. But he did ask us to remember him. Remember last week we referenced the time that Jesus said he doesn't call us his slaves anymore. He calls us his friends. He wants his friends to remember what he endured for them. Can we do it? Can we do that for him? Please pick up the bread. Look at it. Notice what it symbolizes. Even if you don't have matzah bread, imagine what that bread must have looked like to Jesus. Remember his sacrifice. Remember his pain. Remember the beating and the bruising and the nail piercing and the whipping that left stripes on him. See that he did it for you. See that he was thinking of you when he went through all of that. Take the bread now. Thank him, but mostly remember him. I know how dramatic this is. I know how emotional this is. 
there are always two elements at the table of the Lord. There's the body and there's the cup. If one of those things are missing, you might as well have neither. It's an incomplete celebration without both elements and incomplete things have no value in God's plans. Let's stay in Matthew this time. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them and saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Growing up in the church I grew up in, we never received the cup. They do it more now, but in those days, they decided it wasn't necessary. If you didn't grow up Catholic as I did, that may actually surprise you. The official statement of the Catholic Church is as follows, quote, Since Christ is sacramentally present under each of the species, communion under the species of bread alone makes it possible to receive all the fruit of Eucharistic grace, unquote. There are so many things that I want to say about that, but let me just say this. In the Bible, covenants were made with the shedding of blood. Exodus 24, 8, And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Hebrews 9, 19, and 20, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Matthew 26, 27, and 28, And he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament. That word actually means covenant. For this is my blood of the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Blood at the new covenant. You cannot do this without the blood. It's actually really amazing how consistent the Bible is, don't you think? Now, one more thing before we partake of this cup, and it relates to our discussion of the bread. The English word shed there in verse 28 is actually a good choice, I think, because it properly captures the tone of the original, which is rather unusual for the English language. The word that it's translating is a form of the verb ekuno. Strong's Dictionary says, ekuno means to pour forth, to gush out, to run greedily out. This wasn't just bleeding. This was a slaughter. And I mean that literally. Now, this may offend you. This may even disgust you. But you know, I don't care. I'm certainly not trying to be repulsive. I'm just trying to tell you what it is. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says this word is intended to describe violence. This is the word that Greek speakers would use to describe a violent death. Pick up your cup and look at it as we prepare ourselves. 
Ikuno. Jesus submitted to a violent gushing forth of his blood, and he did it voluntarily, and he did it for us. Now, I know I have failed to properly describe this, so I'm praying that the Holy Spirit fills in the gaps because we must discern his body and what it went through. That's why both elements are here. How can you discern the violence of his sacrifice if you don't have a symbol of the shed, Akuno, blood? How can you remember what he did if you don't have all the proper reminders? Listen, we need reminders because our minds don't want to think of this, especially knowing we're responsible. And we are, you know. Even if I only sinned occasionally, no sins were minor to me in the world. Even if I sinned once, only by saying poopy when I got mad, he would still have to volunteer to be violently slain. But why? Why the violence? Why such a high cost? Well, his death had to be costly because, among other things, though we may think it differently, sin is no small matter to God. And God wants you to know that. He already knows it. But we must call to mind the violence of the death of Jesus because we must know how steep the cost of our rebellion is. If we don't remember the violence, we won't appreciate what we've been saved from. And worse yet, we may not feel compelled to tell others about it. If we don't fully appreciate the danger our loved ones are in, we may never urge them to seek help. As parents, we tell our children not to touch a hot stove because we all know how painful burns are. We frantically rush to our child as they reach up and try to grab the handle of the pot that's boiling because we have knowledge of what boiling water can do to skin. It isn't a casual correction. It's an all-out panic because we know the severity of the danger. Listen to me. You will never be useful in God's plan for the salvation of mankind if you don't fully appreciate the danger we're all in. And the only way to fully appreciate that danger we're all in is to appreciate the severity of the price that was paid to save us. This cup is a symbol of that price. It reminds us of the gushing blood that was necessary to remit sin. Take the cup now, see the high price, discern the death that was necessary, appreciate what it takes to save you, and thank Him for it. And do it now. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info 
at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.